the Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. On the planet. With your host, Paul Murphy, and expert coach, Nick Nanavati. Hey everybody, we are back. Thanks a lot to the subscribers for joining us this far. It means a whole lot. I'm Paul Murphy, Nick Nanavati. Hello, everybody. I know, and I, I, look, I know we say it every week, but it really, really does mean a lot to folks that have subscribed and for part two, want to support the show. You know, if you have not already left us a review, maybe leave <laughs> five star as well. But I know we mentioned that during the, during the first part. But, you know, again, just uh, really appreciate everybody tuning into this episode. Yeah, no, seriously, without all of your support, you're a you know, your love for us on Patreon and just the Warroom in general. We couldn't do this. We we couldn't create this show. We couldn't keep sustaining it. We couldn't do any of the content we create for you. So big thanks to you for letting us do this. Uh, and in this part, uh, staying true to the format, we talk about some of the big matchups. I mean, there are, you know, I want to say some some uh, boogeyman out there as far as like the uh, list and archetypes go. And you mentioned, we did, we talked to, you know, briefly, kind of jokingly about Tyranids in part one. So let's start with Tyranids now. Like the list oh, you're talking about. Paul, you hate me. You really hate me. I, I want to, well, trying to pull the bandaid off. I'm trying to get through this together. We're going to, we're going to talk about it. We're going to let our My list out. is, my list is perfect. I can't lose. Tyranids is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> now you played against John Lennon and John, you know, I don't even mind saying this has been like a, an, an architect, a list architect that folks have tried to replicate his success with his list out there. But, you know, and not everyone plays like John Lennon plays. No, uh, he's so there's a lot of different styles of Tyranids, right? The, when you say Tyranids, a lot of different things come to mind. Harpies, Carnifexes, Fly, Rinse, Warriors, Spam, Raveners, Kraken, Leviathan, who knows? Um, John's been really doing well with the Kraken style of Tyranids, which I, in my opinion, has been by far the hardest for my Eldar to battle. I've, I've faced Leviathan a few times. I even played against other variations of Kraken. John's has definitely been the most challenging, especially when he is the pilot behind it. I would say what makes the matchup so challenging, as opposed to the other variations of Tyranids, is that... The Flyrant can't re- I can't really interact with because he's going to sit behind Tyrant Guard, be virtually unshootable, and you know my army definitely likes to shoot as its hey, damage output. Just output. charge him with the Swooping Hawks. What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, yeah, that's never going to work. And even something <laughs> like like Banshees don't really get it done versus something like a Flyrant. So it's and they're also it's hard to charge a Flyrant when he's standing behind Tyrant Guard and Raveners and Venomthropes. He's he's screened. So this guy's a menace. John has two. That's real bad. Um, and there's Raveners. And the thing that Kraken gives all of these units is an 8-inch automatic advance and an onslaught cast from a billion inches away because of the chain links from the synapse. Just means the units can, I think, Flyrants advance 25 inches in charge, Raveners go 26 inches in charge or something. That's too fast. Like, these things go from behind a wall in their safety pocket to charging my army. And it's really, really hard to live in a world where they can hit me and I can't hit them when I'm playing the Elder Army. The other variations to Tyranids typically a little on the slower side and that's where i can kind of pin them in the same corner where i pin literally every other faction where they are just taking hits from me and i'm going back behind my walls and they try and they're move blockable and then they don't they're not super fast so that i can 
go where they're not going to be able to hit with by knowing their threat ranges and asking the right questions and just keep on doing the dance with them. I shoot them, I go back behind the wall. I shoot them, I go to a different wall and then there's no more Tyranids. Kraken's too fast and you can catch them in mistakes. I played against Timey Paris also uh, it, right after I, I played against John. He had a different Kraken list, but same thing, a flyer on a Tyrant card. He had even more Raveners. He had double Harpies. So in theory, his list was worse for me. Um, part of it was that I went first versus Jaime. I went second versus John. Going first is huge. Both of our armies are so fast, so whoever goes first gets two-thirds of the table and then from there dominates the board state. So going first versus Jaime really helped in that regard because it really constricted where his safety spots were, whereas I had a lot more freedom of the board against John. He went first. He was able to get a lot more of the board, and my safety spots were very, very small, and it was hard to get primary points. So let's uh, let's break down that concept of safety spots. Great question. So by safety spots, I mean basically where your army can exist, where your opponent can't realistically damage. Against shooting armies, this is pretty much what is out of line of sight from where they are or where they can move to in the next turn. So if they go 12 inches forward, left, right, or sideways— what are they going to be able to see? What are they going to be able to have range to? Anything that's not in those spots that they have sight and range to, those are your safety spots. Against combat armies, same idea. What can they charge? You know, outside of that distance, those are your safety spots. When Kraken Tyranids go first and they just take a move and advance up turn one, hide up behind all the terrain in the midfield effectively, it's really hard for me to do enough damage to matter in one turn, as we've discussed. And because my army likes to do damage over five turns. And then I have such little board control because my safety spots are like next to nothing when you add all those potential threat ranges from Onslaught and Kraken Strat that I really, I really am between a rock and a hard place. And it kind of puts me into the situation where I have to play to get lucky and lean into my damage on try to get it all done in one turn, deal crippling damage in one turn, which my army's not really built for. Or I have to hope they make some movement mistakes, let me screen them, and things of that nature. And unfortunately, Mr. Lennon is pretty good at this game, and uh, he did not make yeah. such movement errors. Let me also again, try to, I'm gonna try to uh, pick apart some of the things that you're, you're talking about as we're moving along. You say uh, you want to do damage over five turns, and then, and then a little bit later you said, you know, you're, you're not good at, at front-loading all that damage in one turn kind of thing. So why do you think that with your army? And I, again, looking at it, you've got a bunch of smites. You could do damage in uh, several different phases. You've even got some close combat stuff. Like you, why are you saying that your army is is not good at that kind of one turn, like super it's, overhand right? That's a great question. Again, some unit profiles it is like against like a lot of toughness three, toughness four, not amazing armor save bodies, like say a demon army uh, or like a lot of cultists. I would table that. I would kill a thousand cultists in two turns. You know, who cares? But against those toughness five, tougher tyranid bodies, toughness six, tyrant guard, but two of saves, raveners, warriors, the strength bore needs a high volume to add up, and I have an immense volume. So if I, a great example is John put 10 Raveners in my face in the open. He was like, here's 10 Raveners. And he had the, the zone throw synaptic link up. So they all had five up and vulnerable saves on his army. At the same time, two Flyrens are pressing upon me with Tyrant Guard. And this is the position he put me in on turn two. And I doomed a Ravener squad. I guided my Hawks. I did this. I did that. I'm, I'm not really able to bring the smites to bear because if I'm smiting Tyranids from 18 inches away, um, one, I'm not casting my other powers, which are typically more valuable. And then two, um, I'm insta-charged if he lives. 
Like 18 inches is nothing to a to a Kraken list. And then even with Guide and Doom, Jinx is only so helpful because they have five bindles. Strength four and mass. I killed a Ravener squad and then a little bit more. I didn't touch the Warrior squad. I had no progress done on either of the Flyrens or the Tyrant Guard. There were still plenty of Zone Thrips wandering around in the backfield waiting for just mid to late game. I hadn't done enough damage. So what I tried to do in that scenario was bring my guardians in and move block effectively. And I kept the Ravners at bay for some time. But then one of the Flyermans just came in 25 inches and just charged Baharoth because the dude moves 25 inches and charges something with Fly. Like you can't, if not Baharoth, I put Baharoth someone safer. Okay, he's going to get a Farseer. I move the Farseer somewhere safer, he gets a different Farseer. Hide all my Farseers, he gets my Swooping Hawks, you know? So pick or poison, Baharoth at least has a chance of living in, stands back up. You know we flubbed that role. The one-to-one club exists for a reason. <laughs> in full effect. <laughs> so... That's the challenge for the match, right, is they have such enormous threat range. Some ways I've thought about dealing with it, admittedly this is our toughest match, um, is by adding in a mass amount of sniper rifles like rangers and trout runners, just going deep on that plan. You roll some good fate dice, you cast doom, you can shoot a fly run straight through tyrant card. That's my new hypothesis. Um, I have no idea if that's real. Well, Probably. I mean, you were already talking about adding some more rangers in, in a way. Is Do you think that, this, that having those rangers would make this a less difficult matchup? I think so. I think rangers would do a lot to help this match matchup out um because one they would let me shoot the tyrant i think i'd have to add a lot of rangers to meaningfully shoot a tyrant like 10 rangers is not killing a high tyrant even with doom but like 20 or 30 totally good and that's a bit of a 30 is a bit more than the 10 i was talking about well you know just desperate times call for desperate measures no fair enough yeah my options are kind of rewrite my list to address this fundamental problem or accept that i have a fundamental problem because i don't see a way to baby tweak this style of eldar to address kraken tier and it's effectively that said i played jaime the next round i went first jaime not as familiar with my variation of eldar as john is he made a couple of movement errors i won that game well it can be done you know all you have to do is look for the little mistakes and you're fast enough i promise if you know your 40k fundamentals you will be able to capitalize on them well, i was going to ask is it did, did your uh, experience with the first playthrough uh, with that list i mean i know the list had to have been different could probably not you know model for model the same but did you do things like maybe change up what secondaries you I thought you were going kept- the exact same secondaries. I know that you would think I've learned from my mistakes, but the, the army is painted in such a corner against Tyranids, right? So what secondaries can I take? Um, we've already talked about how retrieve Nephilim data and engage behind enemy lines leads to you getting tabled and against Tyranids with all their screens and just amount of real estate their army takes up, getting behind them is actually pretty challenging. So we're not really interested in those secondaries that make me come towards him. Um, if the mission doesn't allow for it, I can't really take Hidden Path. Even if I could take Hidden Path, he's really good at contesting it, so I don't really okay. want Battlefield well, Supremacy. When, when you say the mission, like what are you looking at for the mission to say this is a better choice? Hidden Path, when you have a webway gate, requires you to place your webway gate outside of six inches of your deployment zone and then hold it from the enemy at the start of your command phases. So if it's like a hammer and anvil-style deployment where six inches outside of my deployment zone is the middle of the table, that's not a safe place to try to defend against the Tyranid army. If, it, if six inches outside my deployment zone could be the back edge of the table in like a quarter style thing where I could turn quarters and just put it right outside of my edge like 40 inches from John's deployment zone, that's a defendable position. Some missions that can work, others it doesn't. In both the games I played against John Jaime, I wasn't a big fan of it, so I skipped it. I could do scout the enemy, 
I could do banners. Both those are fairly defensive secondaries. I typically pick one of those. Usually painted into no prisoners or bring it down depending on their amount of big stuff to wounds. Against John and Jaime, I took no prisoners against both of them. Still married to a pretty much a psychic secondary, so either in ritual or interrogation. I took ritual in both games. I think I'm going to start taking interrogation because ritual basically requires I go into shadows range to cast it, where interrogation I can play a little further back. But it doesn't feel great in either case. Yeah, it seems like maybe getting up there and wanting to be in the center of the table is counterproductive to your health. That, that's exactly it, right? So, I mean, part of it was Jaime wasn't as experienced in the matchup as John was, like I was saying. So John was very threatening and aggressive with his pieces in a way where it overloaded me and he was able to take my one turn of brutality and then just kind of get into my army. Jaime tried to play a trade game with me which is way more in my control because I have so much more ability to fly 20 inches, shoot something, and leave. His tactic for that is overrun, where he charges something and then leaves. Um, but if he's charging something and leaving, he's only getting about 14 inches away from my front lines or whatever he charged. So he's still going to be in threat range, whereas like if I go 20 inches to the Hawks and teleport, I am wherever I want to be. So this is really where a lot of it comes down to first, second turn, deployment style, because it's, it depends how much board area you have as your safety spots. Yeah, I like that. So you think that there is a solution outside of adding 25 more Rangers to your army to maybe... <laughs> To maybe make it, it a little easier. You can definitely play the game. It's totally a playable match, especially if your opponent is not John Lennon and makes some human mistakes. But <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, let's talk about you know, the course radically changing the list. And part of this uh, part of the episode, I do want to talk about like what would you functionally if after you've played through the the you know the the litany of players at an event and maybe had that reflection after the the fact, if you would change you know either to to better position yourself in the meta or to potentially you know, um, I guess get ahead of trends that are happening in the meta. Well, what would you do? And yeah. 25 Rangers, probably, probably not the answer, but uh, d do you think that has more play outside of what maybe the, just the Tyranid matchup? I actually think the Rangers are an interesting call for a lot of matchups. They give me a lot of OPSEC units just straight away that I don't care about. They're 65 points each. They start in the middle of the table. I can just kind of throw them around and move block and steal objectives really effectively. Think of them like a Viper, where you'd use a solo Viper to contest an objective and, and stand in front of a, like a kill rig and keep it from moving or something like that. Um, five Rangers that started behind a wall in midfield can move out turn one, stand in front of the same kill rig, deal the same objective, be obsec in five models. And oddly enough, in your Chaos Space Rain match, in your Tau match, in your Tiernet match, they can just start shooting very valuable linchpin characters. And if you have like 20 or 30 of them, and you have some Fate Dice Fives for wounds, you cast Doom on an enemy in it, you're going to be raining some mortals into somebody. It's I actually not... think that the mortals from snipers is probably going to be even more important when Astral Terum gets up to full speed. Well, that's a whole other thing, right? New Guard are going to come out. I don't even know what their lists are going to look like. But one thing I'm really afraid of is that one of the things my Elder Army is predicated on is being Toughness 3 standing behind a wall is good enough defense because walls are pretty impenetrable in 40k. You can't see through them. If you're far enough away from the enemy, they can't charge you. No damage here. But if guard become really prominent with their indirect fire, my swooping hawks standing on foot are going to have to get some bigger wings. Yeah, that's uh, going to be rough. Tank. We'll see how that all yeah. shakes out. But then, you know, as far as like the orders and things go, like they're going to be uh, characters like Lord Solar Lenatus and Ursula Creed and any other random character dishing out some pretty powerful effects. And maybe you want to snipe them. Definitely. Definitely. I 
there's not snipers in the meta. The 40k is weird with snipers, right? When snipers are a thing in the meta, like when Raven of Guard was really good back in the day, um, people have really had to adjust their play, keep their characters safe. They stopped taking Lynchpin characters, and then Raven Guard kind of fell by the wayside. And and that's not the only reason that Raven Guard have fallen by the wayside, but they that is a factor, right? Because they have fallen it's... out of the the meta. Sniper rifles have basically fallen out of the meta. Like other things, we'll talk about screening. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's like these these little things. Like when there's a ton of sniper rifles, people will put more effort into character defense and keeping their characters protected, building lists that aren't centered around characters, etc. Right now, there's no sniper rifles in the meta, which opens up this weird opportunity for hey, people are too comfortable. Pew 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 pew. Yeah, nice. All right, well there you go. Got the the tyranny thing, which you you identified it as being a tough matchup, but uh, I like that we can kind of reflect on it again after the fact a little bit with a little bit of hindsight and also a little bit of forward thinking and figure out ways to make it an easier matchup that's all it's about that's all what it's about yeah well i can't imagine that you have much trouble with kind of like stock space marines you know like a you know dark angels or, or what have you but please correct me if i'm wrong so i'd kind of like to focus more on the power armor side of things and and maybe even the the psychic power armor and the form of like the thousand suns and the gray knights i would say to your point yeah most space marine armies aren't really too much of a threat i'm just so fast and this really extends to chaos space marine armies as well i played against some chaos space marines with the you know the typical terminator brick with the unkillable the illusory supplication and and all that stuff if if you don't have a certain amount of speed you can't participate with my army unless the board is too open and then i'm just going to be shot in the face so you, this army is terrain dependent um assuming they're playing with adequate terrain in this format, I was able to player place terrain to make sure I had adequate terrain, which is very much a factor to why I brought it. Slow armies just can't compete. And even when I say slow armies, average speed armies, average fast armies, you know, like 12 inch movers, still not fast enough. You've got to be like cracking speed or tower. Honestly, speed. jump packs, still not getting it done. I, you can, you know, get me in Dawn of War, you go first, that can pin me in. But like most of the time, I'm fast enough to evade that. So Space Marines largely, and Chaos Space Marines fall to those kinds of traps. Blood Angels and Dark Angels, I think, have more legs to stand on than other chapters. Um, Blood Angels, if only because they have two saves in mass and so much of my army is ap nothing when the scattered lasers and the, the hawks that i can't jinx all of it so if you just put 30 sanguinary guard in my face plus death company plus characters you're gonna lose like half your army in one turn but it doesn't take half your army to table me like the half you have left might do it um i think someone who just full blitzes me with blood angels would be a very interesting game and then dark angels if they bring those dark towns, you go first. Any planes, which we'll get to with the harpies and the the Tau sun sharks, when we get to them, those are always so threatening because you can bypass all of my wall defense in some way or another and just shoot me. So those are always big threats, and Ravenwing are super fast. Grey Knights and Thousand Suns also pose similar challenges, I would say. Not because they're so fast, so threat overloady, but because they have the ability to smite screens away in the psychic phase and then re-deep strike via gate or the cult of duplicity power into the hole that they create. And then that new hole might have line of sight to things I don't want it to if I haven't been able to perfectly create my board. And then all of a sudden, four Terminators get line of sight to nine swooping hawks. 16 shots later, I'm down to three swooping hawks. And that's like one of my key units dead. Before, so you got to be real careful about that stuff. Before we get too far away from this, I want to, to touch on something you just said there. Uh, if you aren't able to create your board, to, that's that's a very active statement you made. 
Uh, That's you, very true. What do you mean by that? Um, we're playing in player place for in, terrain format, same as frontline gaming. Um, some other formats use it as well, other tournaments. That format allows you to essentially create your own table half. Like I know my opponent's not really able to place terrain on my half of the table or vice versa. Um, in this tournament, I actually they were actually allowed to mess with your opponent's half, but largely I was able to create my own board, meaning impact my own half without my opponent. So with that, you have certain amounts of terrain, whether it's ruins that obscure line of sight or forest craters, whatever, cargo containers, and knowing your army, especially with this one, so intimately, I was able to not only create a nice couple safety spots where I was putting line of sight blocking on an objective, so I was able to hide the hide hold the objective from out of line of sight, but I also created various staging points around the table, ruins and spots I knew I would want to move to as a retreat or another hiding spot that I wanted to become safe from my opponent as the game progressed. This would typically be not on an objective, but on the way to future objectives, or as my opponent kind of bowling balls their Terminator brick towards my home field objective, well, I need to be able to run away at some point. Where do I run to? Creating those spots is something I, I needed to foresee, and that's what I mean with creating your own board. It's very active. Uh, sticking on this kind of the psychic powers things, like with the thousand suns and their cabal points, and you know, like endless stream of psychers. Do you do you feel like you have enough or too many, or can you can you compete in that phase? Does that lock you down on your secondary options? Great question, Paul. This this is a rough one. I part of my choice with the Swift Strikes and Masterful Shots was not playing all the way, which we know Matt Shookman and James Kelly both played all the way to Nova Open and GW US Open finale, both winning or doing really well at those events. And one of the things that Althway does for you is they give you a five up from Mortal Wounds, awesome against those psychic armies, and they give you the ability to even further manipulate your fate dice than I do, so more likely to get those big dice numbers to cast. And they have a relic, which is on a nine plus to cast, which with a fate die is not that hard. You have to just roll three up on your other die. Um, the, the spell is undeniable. So Althway is really, really good versus Tyranids, Thousand Suns, Grey Knights, in their tech ability to jam through psychic interrogation or ritual and be undeniable when all three of those armies have ways to better deny you. I have access to focus will, which is plus two cast and deny, which sort of helps. Um, but largely, no, I really get dominated in the psychic phase by all three of those factions. And that sucks because that's such a huge part to my army. Uh, the part of the trade-off when you're picking craft worlds is it's really like uh, you choose between utility and defense and offense and speed. So I went kind of maximum offense and speed with ignores cover and swift strikes. And my utility and defense, when I say utility, I mean my psychic phase utility, is pretty low because I didn't go all the way. I don't have five of you on pain from mortals is the defense I'm missing. I have less fate dice manipulation than I could. So while I would be able to better jam through my psychic phase and defend against theirs, I would have less offense. I wouldn't ignore his cover. So all those thousands on scarab terminators that are two up save, armor of contempt, all is dust in cover. Yeah, my one damage, strength four, AP, two at best army, three at best if I roll sixes, that's not going to do anything to scratch the paint on the thousand suns. So I went for more offense, more ability to apply mortal wounds with my 20 inch swift strike plan. Um, just all the mortal wounds hidden throughout the army, the shroud runners, the banshees, etc., to try to kill these rubric marines or green knight paladins ignores cover is enormous in the tiered match i do not need raveners taking three up saves from swooping hawks that's really bad raveners are so good like they just are so good i mean they, they basically do it all they move very fast they hit a lot they have some guns they 
It's tough. That's not what we're talking about, but you mentioned them, and I just want to constantly remind people that the Ravagers on the table are like target priority number one. It kind of, it's this trade-off between like, I'm better at executing my psychic plan, but worse at doing damage. And I'm already identifying that if someone threat overloads me, damage is typically the issue. If I can't move block, stall them, which is my guardians and my shroud runners. Um, So I didn't want to be worse at damage. That's pretty much it. Yeah, gotcha. So, okay. So yeah, having a plan, that's really good. Uh, going in there with the cabal points, making some things undeniable. Uh, is that, I guess, with them being able to jump around the board, do you then find yourself having to be more d- defensible? Yeah, I really, it's a thousand suns. If I play against someone who's like the best thousand suns player there is, they're probably going to get me. And it sucks. Um, a lot of that game is hoping they make mistakes in their teleportation or their resource allocation, uh, allow me to maybe do some damage to them when they could have otherwise prevented it. Um, and I'm I'm fast. I'm crafty. I'm playing elves. You know, I'm really good at manufacturing situations where I can do surprise damage to people and, and get to them pretty much all the time uh, in meaningful ways. But Thousand Suns do have the ability to play a really defensive game. They have better secondaries going into me than I do going into them, um, just because they have better psychic control than me. So that part of my plan is going to fall apart. They're going to take banners the same way I'm going to take banners. Um, and then we're both going to struggle for our last secondary in that match. So being that they have a psychic secondary advantage is going to tip them off a little bit. I really don't want to be the aggressor in that match. I want them to have to come to me so I can then counter strike. That's kind of how my army operates the best. Uh, so anything I can do to, to gain control or if my opponent tries to get aggressive, maybe I have to throw a swooping squad, swooping hog squad out as bait where like my opponent has to really commit their terminators to go get it. They go get it. They think they've done a good plan, but now I've got their Terminators. Something like that is what I'll try to create, where they have to work really hard to get a kill, and then I get to kill them in response. But uh, it's not its not an easy game. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it, like the sound of that. Uh, I know we're talking about the Thousand Suns, but something you're seeing in a lot of Thousand Suns lists is the Flamers. You know, like, do you have enough to spread it around to where you can deal with a bunch of armor, contempt, and this very potent unit in the form of the Flamers? So Thousand Suns with Flamers, I think, might be even more of a matchup for me than Tyranids. I don't know. I haven't played that one. Um, I do have a plan for Flamers, especially in the context of a Demon Army or a CSM Army, because the rest of those elements are a lot more manageable for me. It's the Teleporting Armor of Contempt. That's where I really want my AP3 Banshees to charge in and do some real work into them. Um, But obviously, my Banshees also are my key ingredient for dealing with Flamers. Honestly, them plus Baharath is my Flamer plan. And it works really well. If it's just flamers I'm keeping at bay, as far as traditional chaos army plus flamers doesn't really shoot until you add the flamers. And the reason for this is because the flamers, they need to come forward to shoot. And if they come forward and I have banshees sitting behind a wall, they're going to come forward into banshee charge range. And if I can basically get those banshees into position, they're in a staring contest with flamers. If I move my banshees out first, then the flamers will get them. If the flamers move up first, my banshees will get up them. I'm good with that. I'm good with your flamers being out of the game and my banshees being out of the game. And the rest of us are just playing with your remaining chaos army that's slow and my remaining swooping hawks and dire vendors and stuff that's fast and shooting. I want to create that kind of match. But if I'm doing that against Thousand Suns where my banshees are hiding behind a wall, keeping their flamers at bay, then I don't want to get into that same match with Thousand Suns Terminators or Paladins. Because, well, Paladins don't have Flamers, that helps. But Thousand Suns Terminators shoot, teleport, really hard for me to kill. 
not the type of thing my swooping hawks want to go one versus one with. Whereas like Chaos Space Marine Terminators or even like a Demon Prince, Greater Demon type thing. Yeah, my swooping hawks got that. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, let's jump over and talk about the Tau. Because the Tau uh, seemed to be well positioned to deal with Eldari and the, in the form of a lot of their units. I guess depending on which build, you know, we can talk about Crisis Suits. Uh, or at least the bulk crisis series versus things like Riptides. But I think that you're going to increasingly find that every Tau list has a couple of uh, bombers. Yeah, yeah. You, the Tau matches when I spend a lot of time planning for, thinking about, talking through, and just working on. Uh, it's a huge problem for a foot-based Elder Army is these bombers. They can fly up, bomb you, shoot you, make your life miserable. And the other aspect of Tau is they're so fast with their firepower, and you're, you're so made of Eldar. So when they do get on a site to you, you just die. And typically that's on turn one with the bombers, turn two with the rest of their faction. So how do you do something about that? And this is where we get the weird tech of the Webway Gate and the Wave Strip and all that stuff coming in. So what I can do is I deploy my Tendar Avengers in my Serpent against Tau. And then if I keep that thing out of line of sight, which isn't too hard... Um, the bombers don't really kill it and then kill the dire Avengers inside. And that's pretty much all of their effort to fail at. And by that, I mean, you bomb it, you're going to roll uh, six dice every four up as a mortal, you get three mortals. Then you're going to do it again, you get three more mortals. So that's half of my wave serpent. And then you shoot it. I could lightning fast it. Um, it's transhuman, so you're only winning it on fours. I get an invul save. It might take two bombers to kill it between bombing and shooting, and then there's nothing left to actually kill the Avengers that get out. So that's not really a viable plan. Your other option is to go fly over and shoot Swooping Hawks. This is where I have the one unit with the Fiona Pain and the Winged Evasion deployed, and the other unit's going to start in reserve. So when the bombers come up, they bomb my Swooping Hawks. They're going to roll nine dice every four up as mortal, so they're going to get 4.5 mortals through. And then I'm going to roll female pains because I bought that for the unit. I'm going to lose three hawks. So I have six hawks left. And then they fly over and then they roll every four ups mortal on my six remaining hawks. And then they got three four ups through. And then I take my female pains. They kill two more hawks. So I have like a four or five man hawk unit, which is not spectacular. And then they're going to shoot. I minus one to hit base. If they get mark lights on me, I can lightning fast right back at them. And then maybe they kill a whole hawk unit. And that's basically trading a hawk unit for both planes because my dire vendors get out. And smoke both planes, no problem, especially with smite, smite support. This is where I go smite factory with my Farseers. There's two bombs in my backfield. And that's that's a trade I'm okay with. You know, a unit of Hawks may be totally dead, maybe not totally dead. Four two planes, totally reasonable. Zvire vendors really allow that. And then we get into my webway gate, because you'll wonder, like, where's the rest of my army? What's that doing? Well, it's, the rest of my army is basically hiding and running away from the Tau army if they're sprinting out. And then, then the webway gate becomes active on turn two, and then we play a midfield game where I dodged all the shooting phases. The tower army's in midboard because it's trying to kill me, and now here's my army, and I'm going to kill it. If they're not sprinting at me, they try to get into control game. Well, okay, your planes killed my, my hawks. My dire avengers killed your planes. And now we're in a staring contest where I'm behind walls. You're behind walls. We're playing long range shooting at each other. The swooping hawks and Eldar, I'm never going to take a shot back. If you're doing that style, you pretty much have riptides and stuff, so you're never going to take a meaningful shot back. But I have psychic secondaries, and you don't as Tau, so I can actually win that kind of control game very easily. You don't have any psychic defense. So that's kind of how they lose the game, actually, is by 
sending the bombers forward, doing some damage, trading the bombers, and then just staying away from me and shooting me because I'll beat them on points. Especially if I'm going second, I just have to stay alive and walk on all the objectives at the end. It's when they push into me, it gets really hard, especially if they've gone first. That's where I can reserve so much of my army and then appear with my army into their into where they are because they're trying to press into me, if that makes sense. Uh, being Having your eye focused on the scoreboard is, is big. And, and to talk maybe a little bit less faction-specific here, but when we're talking about games and calling games, you know, we... You know, we we can have a, a kind of a good sense of when a player is falling behind, but we're also looking at it from fifty thousand feet and seeing everything up in real time. Like, how do you stay present in the game to make sure that you are, you know, you are not letting the game slip away from you because you're not focusing on the scoreboard early enough? There's two ways I go about it. Uh, it's a great question. It's one we actually teach in the war room. This this cop topic we call it uh, score projecting and all that. One is like reps and experience will generally guide you pretty accurately at a certain point, whether or not you're winning or losing. But a way you can always confirm and before you have ample amounts of reps and experience is just project the scores on a piece of paper. So reasonably, especially so in a control match where let's say the Tau in this example are sitting on their half of the field and me, the Eldar, are sitting on my half of the field, we can, I can right here on this podcast walk you through the scoring of that game. So... What do Tau players take as their secondaries? They take that aerospace thing where they perform actions on in the various midpoints on the battlefield, and it, they're never going to score more than the one or two that's on their half of the field until they come table me. So right now the onus is on them to table me to get more than, say, four points or whatever it is for only scoring two of those, those objectives because they have to come to my side. And the only way to come to my side and start performing actions is to kill everything. That's, that's what the Tau plan is. The other one is their their decisive actions. This will depend on their Moncar or Kalyan. Um, I'm generally going to assume they get this one. This is like 12 points for holding half of the objectives at the end of specific turns. This is really easy for Tau. So they got 12 points on this secondary by just playing their natural game. They got, let's say, four points on aerospace for just playing their natural game. And their last one is usually either like no prisoners or banners or something like that. So let's say it's banners, and they're going to raise banners on the objectives on their half of the board, and they're not really going to raise banners on my half of the board because that's not what Tau's doing. So they got two objectives on their half of the board. They raise those banners up turn one with their crew. I never go over there and bother them. It's the assumption we're going to go with because it's going to determine who's winning or losing for this points projection is the only point. that Those banners are worth two points or want five points each because they're up for five turns. Two banners, ten points. So we got a 12, a 4, and a 10 on their secondaries. That comes out to 26 out of 45. So then we go to their primaries. Well, if we're doing this kind of projection as if they're playing a control game with us, just sitting on their half of the field, two objectives on their half. Let's assume it's a take and hold style mission. So two objectives will get them eight points. Points times four turns, turns two, three, four, and five is 32 points before I can test objectives, before they have bottom of turn to go get that extra four on turn five or before we factor in a mission-specific primary. And every mission has its own weird specific mission primary, so I don't want to get too detailed into that, but you can figure out if it's going to be an easy one to get or a hard one to get for the faction based on the mission. So let's call it 32 points on primary, really roughly. Eight points for two objectives times four turns. Ten points for two banners times five turns. Decisive action when it needs to happen. And the aerospace targeting on their half of the board. So 32 primary, what do we say, 26 secondaries. That's going to be... 58 points before paint, 68 with paint. So my Eldar army, well, if the tower are going to go on, you know, occupy their half of the board, 
I'm going to go occupy my half of the board. So I get to raise those same two banners for 10 points. So that's 10. I get to hold the same two objectives, just mirrored on my side. So that's 32 primary, the same way it is for the Tau. And again, we can add based on who has bottom. We can subtract based on what I plan on contesting or when he plans on shooting me off. And we can add based on the mission primary. But rudimentary, it's 32 to 32, 10 to 10 on banners. Now we look at our other secondaries where it's like I've gone for psychic ritual or psychic interrogation. I like ritual because my opponent doesn't have a say in the matter. They can't choose to keep their cold stars in the back back corner to deny me points. I'm going to get a 12 as long as I can run a far seat to the middle and say quicken every turn. Even if I don't say quicken, I still score the points as long as I cast the power. I'll just lose a far seer for my troubles. So that's a 12 compared to their aerospace four. And then the last secondary, let's say we both took no prisoners. So now we have to kill each other, which is a zero until we go actively do it. So I have a 12 on a secondary and banners for a 10. I'm at 22 plus 32. I'm at 54 points to my opponent's 58 points, 68 and 62 with paint respectively. So I'm not in control this game. I need to figure out how I can contest some objectives, how I can change what secondaries I take to put less onus on me to go do something, more passive points, anything like that to try to get control. And that's really how you determine whether or not you're going to win the long run or lose in the long run and, if your opponent just sits there and does nothing. And you want to be making these uh, assessments and adjustments when? At the start of your turn? At the end of your opponent's turn? Like when do you? Because you can't just math all this out in turn one and then never look back at it. No, I, I definitely like to do it at the beginning of the game. Get a, get a flow for who has the onus to come at them in the beginning. Because if you can win the game by just sitting on your half, don't try to make it harder. Um, and then if you need to go do something actively to win, you need to figure that out as soon as quickly, as soon as possible to go get it going. You don't want to realize on turn four you're losing. So Yeah, especially turn, if you have secondaries that, that are like turn locked to where if you miss them, they're gone completely. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, some primaries work like that as well. So. You know, it's really like that. You you want to do it at the beginning of the game, and that's your general roadmap for who's winning, who's losing. And then as things get going, you reevaluate it. Like that projection assumes that everyone gets eights on primaries every turn. What happens if I just make my banshees obsec and go take contest an objective? Well, now it's minus four points to his score. Oh, I have bottom of turn. That's the the value I get for getting bombed by flyers turn one. Well, we'll add four to my primary because I get to walk on the objectives on turn five, assuming I'm still here. So now all of a sudden I was down by six in that points projection. Well, his 68 is now a 64 and my 62 is now a 66. I'm winning. I really don't have to get aggressive. Yeah, I like that. Uh, ch changing gears and with list a bit. I want to talk about demons and also but specifically about the bloodthirster that everyone takes. There, there are like multiple builds around the bloodthirster. Uh, that are incredibly strong. Of course, flamers. We'll, we'll talk about them too. But we kind of already addressed them, but the, these um, demons specifically, but also powerful creatures that have this this wound threshold. Yeah. So bloodthirster is. Um, they have a phase cap these days, at least the scariest ones do, which means I can only do eight damage to them in a given phase. Luckily for me, the hawks do damage in the movement phase. The farseers do damage in the psychic phase. My army does damage in the shooting phase. My Shroud Runners do damage in my opponent's turn in either the movement or the charge phase. My Banshees do movement and damage in my own charge phase. And I have a variety of combat units do damage in the combat phase. So I have no problem sidestepping phase caps in general. I'm pretty fast, so I can avoid the Bloodthirster and things like that for long enough. The biggest 
threat I would say that demons pose to me is that they can mess up my psychic secondaries with their four plus deny strats. So that can really put a put a damper in my points projection. Because and, they've you know, got a bloodthirster that gives them the corn warp storm stuff and and also stratagems and Yeah, it doesn't even have to be the bloodthirster. Demons that just play demons have and have corn units so like blood letters. People run flesh hounds to get the three up deny strat, which is even worse for me. Um, anything like anything corn will provide this stratagem. So when they have the four up deny, it really puts a damper on my psychic plan. I have to be very careful about that and my points projections and just kind of evaluate turn by turn if I'm on track or if I'm falling behind on my psychic secondaries. But you usually still have to take and just hope they don't hit the four. And it becomes expensive to roll one CP a psychic base to try to stop it. Um, the, the monsters in general are a little slow at catching me. It's really just the mortal wound output that they produce through Fate Weaver and things like that that can be cumbersome, but walls do a lot to mitigate that. Bellacor can teleport Flamers or himself or any other Zinch characters around the field, so you got to make sure your screens are up and active. Demons have a lot of ways to manipulate how close they can get to your units, and this is where I use my 20-man guardian unit really cleverly. One thing demons can do as well, which is terrible for Eldar, is trap them in close combat through the Warp Storm or through Scarbrand. So if you have a lot of small units, which is typically how Eldar play, screening, they can kind of charge one and maybe pile and consolidate to the other and then trap that other unit in, which is really rough because that unit will be used against you and then they'll springboard off of it into your army and you can't shoot them and then the plan kind of falls apart. If instead you screen with one really long maximum coherency 60-inch spread guardian unit, because that's literally the entire table again. What happens is if you're at max coherency, the second your opponent does any damage to your guardians, your coherency collapses, your unit's going to kill itself. So usually you don't want your unit to just go kill itself. But against the demon army, it makes my unit impossible to trap because there's no way to engage it by charging something else. There is nothing else. So you have to charge my guardians, Guardians are made of nothing. They're toughness three, four up armor save. Literally a horror will kill guardians in close combat. So they're going to kill something of your guardian unit. And then, oh, domino effect, my guardian unit is no longer in combat with you. Because you're pulling yourself out of coherency every time a casualty is pulled, pretty much indefinitely until you're a five-man unit again. And by manipulating where those five models are, you're just not in close combat. So then you activate your shooting in the following turn. Demons don't like that part. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to try that tactic, but I really wanted to. Oh, no. I mean, it seems very, I mean, reasonable. I mean, with the amount of units you have, and, and granted, they are very deadly, but you, you really only need one turn to possibly scoot through uh, one of these big creatures. And, and at the most, you're sacrificing, probably only really sacrificing one unit. Yeah, right. Like, a lot of times you can you can sacrifice many, many demon units to a demon army, and then they, they show up with their flamers and kill, like, all of them, and they charge you and trap you. And that's a loss condition. If I sacrifice one unit of 20 guardians you know they can wipe it out with flamers they could wipe it out in combat they have their choice of how to kill it but it bought me time and demons don't like that i'm I'm buying myself time i'm trying to control the game and i'm trying to generate as many turns of residual damage from swooping hawks as i can remember i'm trying to kill you over five turns not in one so every turn i buy myself via screens is is just money in the bank yeah i like that well so we've covered a variety of lists uh, what are some other archetypes out there maybe that you're seeing emerging that we haven't jumped on yet? Um, there were a lot more Chaos Knights in general than I thought. I played against three of them. All three games I approached the same way, which was build a, well, build a wall and stay behind it, shoot them, move block, shoot them, move block, shoot them, move block. That worked a lot. 
I would say the biggest way you could try to combat my army, if I'm doing that to you, is just overwhelm me. But it was it was not a very tenable situation for them. So, again, it kind of goes back to speed. Just you have to be fast enough to be able to compete with this army. Otherwise, it will just be used against you. Or if the terrain format is one that is conducive to just shooting you back. That sucks. Yeah, we we actually, you know, as far as, like, chaos goes, uh, we talked to Lilius about the demons and some other things. But, you know, there's creations of bile out there, like a heavy assault force. Uh, with with some of those tricks, now do they present yeah. a problem? Creations of bile, I'm not too concerned about because they they really fall into the same category of CSM to me. As this is trying to get in close combat with me at a relatively slow pace, and I can just play keep away and shoot it, which is the opposite of what they're trying to do. Emperor's children might pose a bit more of a challenge because they have all those blast masters hidden in squads that will shoot me back. But I'm hoping that I can use terrain effectively to mitigate what angles they can see me. I can move 20 inches and shoot them. They move six and shoot me. So I should be able to hide from that way better than they can hide from me. And I don't want to breeze past the Chaos Knights too too fast here because they present uh, an interesting like collection of stats. About the best way to describe it. And you, you don't have like D cannons and stuff in this list. So how do you pull through like high wound count models? fast like maybe not the chaos knights because especially if they're running like 11 or 10 of the war dogs but things like the imperial knights we know them to have you know really large uh, models 20 20 pumps 20 something plus wounds each well honestly the thing with those larger big knight models is doom and jinx are really your best friends when you degrade those kinds of models your army just elevates in efficiency because your every model in your army functionally gains one AP when you cast Jinx on a knight. Every model in your army gains the rule. It also rerolls wounds when you cast Doom on a knight. And then you shoot every model in your army at that knight. So it's a combined arms approach. And then the fact that they never get three up armor, they never get two up armor from me. They often get four up armor from me if I cast Jinx. Um, six is to hit auto wound to go so far into toughness eight because, you know, guide 72 shots. It adds up very quickly. With Doom, even sixes to wound is not, it's about one third. It's a little less. It's, it's quite high given the number of volume I throw at you. And then, like I said, I do a gajillion mortal wounds. It's so, it's so hidden and subtle, but like take four or five in the movement phase, take two in the psychic phase. If I'm playing against knights and this is the plan, take eight in the psychic phase. If I'm trying to kill you via mortals because you're too tough otherwise. I played against a Chaos Knight, I think it was an Abominant or something like that that had the uh, undivided thing. So I couldn't reroll hits, couldn't reroll wounds against it. And uh, that's, as I noted, Guide and Doom are literally how I kill these things. I flew over it in the movement phase with Hawks. I jinxed it. I just shot it with all my Hawks and made use of six dead auto wound, made it take a bunch of four-up saves. I smited it a bunch. I shot it with Baharoth. I charged him with Baharoth. And by the end of all that, he was down to six. And it just, you know, they do go down eventually. That was the hardest to kill knight there is. Get the weight, and you mentioned earlier, I think in the in part one about just the sheer number of strength, you know, of you know, I guess uh, average strength shots that you have will sometimes do the trick, and about how you apply it. It's a weighted dice thing, and this is where I said over five turns you really see the army. Not only do you get such a nice consistency of averages because you're rolling such a high quantity of dice five times over five turns, thirty six dice on hawks twice a turn, five turns, three hundred sixty shots. But the when you play 40k, sometimes dice are hot, sometimes dice are cold. When you play with the big models from your opponent's perspective, how many times have people just winced about the ones they've rolled, not remembering the sixes that came right before them? Yeah, we do remember the 
the ones. Oh. <laughs> right. So my army is is with its high volume. You get these deviations where some rolls you just fail seven saves, and some rolls you just pass twenty, and some rolls are perfectly average. When those deviations down hit, which you can't predict when they'll hit, but over the course of a game they will hit. Um, it totally messes your opponent's plans up because it's like my plan's always the same: shoot you and go back behind the wall. Nothing changes. Doesn't matter how well you roll. I'm going to keep doing the same thing. I'm trusting dice over time to kind of make it up. Your plan falls apart when you have that whiffed phase. And I make you take so many touch save tests, eventually you whiff it. And then it's just like, ah, I wasn't supposed to lose a night there. Well, not in that specific instance, but over the cross of a course of a game, you sure were. Yeah. And yeah, they're not getting the night back in most in many cases. Yeah, yeah. Like my plan never gets affected if I do my job right. I'm just shooting you with the same quantity, more or less, every single turn through the Hawks and the Avengers. And then on the go turn, the guardians show up and the banshees and scorpions mess with you as you try to mess with me. And then eventually you will roll bad. Yeah, there you go. Well, Nick, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Uh, you know, as we we normally have some other folks on the line, but this is you know a couple of different topics here. One, the actual list itself, and and how you effectively play it on the tabletop. But then also, you know, maybe some people that might be on the fence uh, for whatever reason, because they haven't done it in a while, or life got in the way, or they haven't done it yet. Uh, getting into this scene that we know and love, the tournament scene. One of my favorite things. I missed so much was competing. And honestly, I really missed. I didn't think I'd miss it as much as I did. I, I was like, yeah, it'll be cool to compete again. I miss it. Then I came back and I, I am hungry. I am thirsty. Yeah. I want to compete more. Like and it's, you can it's, play I'm back. competitively. Like I'm not saying your test games and your games at home or your games at the game store could could be played at a very competitive thing where you care about what happens and you're playing by you know, the technical rules and everything else. But competing in the course of a tournament where you're playing three or four games in one day over the course and then three or four games the next day. And like, there's a, there's something else to that. Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's also the community, the atmosphere of being at an event, all of that kind of adds to it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Again, it's a pleasure. I want to thank everybody for joining us and making it this far. Uh, look forward to talking to y'all next week. And Nick, of course you as well. Thanks you too, Paul. We'll see y'all soon. Like what you just listened to. Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com